MotoGP has had its summer break of five weekends out. Riders have disappeared, ridden supermoto, some motocross, cycled quite a lot, sat by the pool, maybe had another tattoo or bought another car. We've got back into the groove, we've got our leathers on and we're going to remove that protective film on our new visor before MotoGP kicks back into action this weekend at the Red Bull Ring in Austria for the first of two races on back-to-back -back weekends. Nine races down, nine races still to go. Two in Austria, Silverstone, Aragon, Misano, Cota in America, Sapang, question mark, we'll get around to that, Algarve and then Valencia. I'm Toby Moody and joining me is Valentin Harunchi and Simon Patterson. Well, where do we start? It seems a long time ago since we uh, last did a podcast about a race, but fortunately we got something to look forward to this weekend. And it was a cracking couple of Grand Prix that we had in Austria 12 months ago. What are you looking forward to? Who shall I pick? Simon, you go first. I'm just looking forward to getting some racing back underway again. It's been nice to have five weeks off, not going to lie. It's been a little bit more relaxed. But yeah, it's starting to get itchy feet now. So let's go racing. Let's see what happens. All to play for. Val. I just honestly, I'm looking forward to to seeing what some of the riders will come up in terms of what news that we are expecting, because there's been a lot of wait for the summer break for this, wait for the summer break for that. Now the summer break has come and it's about to it's about to be over. So there's going to be some decisions that will be made and will be made official. What am I looking forward to? It's what people have got technically, what manufacturers are going to come out with another tenth of a second here or they hope half a second somewhere else. But what we all can see in black and white is that Fabio Quattararo is continuing to lead the World Championship, 34 points ahead of Juan Zarco, 25 points for a victory, of course. So whatever happens after the Styrian Grand Prix before the Austrian Grand Prix, Quattararo will continue to lead the championship. Banyaya in third, reigning world champion Juan Mir in fourth as we stand. Austria is normally a Ducati circuit, but last year it was the uh, the KTM that, that rushed to the fore with uh, Miguel Oliveira winning one of the two Grand Prix. Simon, do you think that they are going to be getting their elbows out and getting that local PR with their pride? Yeah, I, I think we've always assumed it as a Ducati circuit. We went there last year and we saw that notion completely blown apart, not just because it wasn't Ducati who won one of the races but because you know let's not forget until red flags come into effect Takanakagami probably should have won a race Juan Mir probably should have won a race Yamaha's were not too far away um I I think that you know it has always been the kind of the anomalous one in the new era of MotoGP where no circuit is an insert manufacturer here circuit um and I think that the time has helped close that gap I think we're going to get there this week and we're going to see more than just the Ducatis being super strong. Don't get me wrong, they'll still be super strong, but they won't have it all their own way, the way that they would have a few years ago. Um, and, and KTM seems to be the manufacturer that's in the best place to, to step up really, because they have many of the advantages that KTM or the Ducati have in terms of speed um, in terms of aerodynamics package, but they don't have the problems that another manufacturer like, say, Honda, that isn't, you know, facing the sort of the inline four uh, engine 
I don't want to say a disadvantage, but you, you know what I mean? It's, um, so, uh, yeah, I think that, um, I think we're going to see a much more open Red Bull ring than we would have two years ago. Let's put it that way. Yeah. I, for what it's worth, I think the way of putting it for me, based on the evidence of last year is, uh, it's not a Ducati track. It's just a non Yamaha track given by again given by what we saw last year even though a yamaha i think was on pole for the first red bull ring race last year but otherwise it felt like every other manufacturer besides maybe aprilia had its time in the sun uh ducati obviously won one of the races could have easily won the other one with with jack miller in the final corner ktm looked probably the best bike but also suzuki had two very real shots at winning, winning a race with either John Mayer or Alex Rins. And obviously Honda looked handy with Nakagami. And we know that Ale- uh, that Mark Marquez is is pretty great there, even though he doesn't always win, but he's he's done more with the Honda packages at the Red Bull ring than maybe you would have expected to, uh, you know, taking it to the wire against Davicioso a couple of times. So I, I see it as a fair bit of, damage limitation for fabio maybe but it's 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 hard to tell because i think on was it on fabio's debut i think he looked quite quite swell at the red bull ring it was just last year that it didn't really didn't really work out so yeah it's always been kind of not a yamaha track on paper but they've also sort of semi-consistently been putting finishers there including fabio quadraro uh 2019 as a rookie it's all absolutely spot on what you've both said. But of course, we have to remind ourselves that 2020 was a bit of an anomaly. Can I say that still? Yes, I can. With all those different winners in the 14 Grand Prix, it was great fun for all of us to to be there, to watch, to look from afar. But um, things have moved on. You know, Dovi's gone. There's a bit of a refreshed Ducati, shall we say. Um, Suzuki not quite in the game as they were 12 months ago. Um, KTM, poor start to this season, really got into top gear now. So, and of course, the unspoken that Valor's just touched on, Marquez is back. You know, he hasn't ridden there for two years at all. He's had five weekends away to not only get a bit stronger physically or whatever his physical weaknesses were, even though he's been back on the bike, but that adjustment of a bit more of a mature mind is still in my mind of what Marquez says at the beginning of that Portuguese Grand Prix at the beginning of the year when he went from wherever it was to up to third position. And I shouted at the television, he's got a bloody lead this race. But then after the race, Mark said, yeah, the old Mark would have continued and I would have crashed. But the new Mark, I've just, I'm going to weigh it up a bit more. So let's see how that one pans out. It is worth noting that the old Mark has actually been in uh, on track more than the new Mark since then, oh, yeah. based on how many times he has got to the front of the lead and crashed out. I wouldn't necessarily say that the maturity is necessarily there uh, yet, based on what he did at Le Mans. Um, and he has been still showing brief moments of the, the old Mark doing stupid things because he used to be able to get away with them. So I think what we're actually going to see this weekend at the Red Bull is a ring is a huge, huge, huge measure of where he's at now because he's had those five weeks away. Um, I, I don't necessarily think that anything has to change mentally with Mark. I think that he, his body needs to catch up with his mind again more than anything else. Um, and whether or not he's been able to do that, we'll, we'll find out, won't we? It's been really interesting to see him 
not training flat track, not training motocross like he used to, but taking a CBR 600 to go-kart track. Um, to me, that shows who the weakness is in, in his body. It's all to do with that that flip of direction, that upper arm movement to, to, you know, to flip the bike around. He's not suffering with core strength because he's been working core strength all the way through the injury because you don't need two arms to ride a bicycle on a trainer, do you? So yeah, that that he has clearly shown us where he's weak. He's clearly worked hard to fix it. We'll find out this. Well, we, we'll find out this weekend to an extent, but it's not actually something that's a huge hindrance at the Red Bull Ring anyway, because it's basically three straights connected by a couple of corners, isn't it? It's not the most physically demanding track in that regard anyway. If he's if he's closer to the to the fitness level that he needs to replicate his his old form, then I'd say um, I'd say he's the guy that Fabio would want to pick up the fifty points. I think if Fabio has to pick which of his rivals gets fifty points at the Red Bull Ring, Zarco no, Banyan no, Miller no, Oliveira no, Mir no, Marquez yes please sure do it, and I think that's going to be fascinating. Uh, Hard to see anybody picking up fifty points though because of what happened last year. But uh, it's it's it is a weekend to to lose a lot of points. It is it is a pair of weekends to lose a lot of points for Fabio if it goes wrong again, like it did, like it did last year. And one of the one of the things about it being an everybody body Yamaha track, like you said earlier, Val, is that it's actually not a bad thing for Fabio Quartararo because it means there is a huge collection of people who will be capable of scoring podiums. You've got to look at people like Jorge Martin. You've got to look, you know, um, maybe if I have saw the weather forecast, it's not fantastic. That makes you think you know, Petrucci's capable of a shot on the satellite KTM. There is realistically nine or 10 people that can be podium finishers this weekend if things are okay and if last year was anything to go by. So, um, yeah, that will also give Quartararo a bit of reassurance. Danilo Petrucci, wrong KTM wins race. Who knows? <laughs> Just like last year, let's not forget. Yeah, you know, and Paul was leading after the first race, after that terrifying accident that brought the red flag out. So he had, was another one that we didn't mention who had his race completely disrupted in the first of the two races there. So, yeah, um, who knows? Who knows? And when it rains there... God in heaven, can it rain? Uh, I went there the first time in 1996. And of course, you know, guys, that the, 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 the pit lane is in kind of the bottom of this little valley. And all of the track is above the pit lane. They had recently done a lot of work around the place and the grass hadn't grown on the earthworks. It rained like the Bible on the Saturday, Friday night, Saturday, there was no grass roots to bind the soil together. So this great big sludge, not a landslide, but just dirty, horrible brown water came down into the paddock. And in the Lucky Strike Suzuki garage, there was four or five inches of sludge and water and everything. And we didn't do any running at all on the Saturday. Um, but come Sunday, we had a bit of fun. And I seem to remember Valentino Rossi got his first podium. So, uh, yeah, it, it can rain. It can rain. And in the other day, somewhere else in Austria, they had hailstones and they were just a little bit smaller than golf balls. So, uh, yeah, mountain, mountain weather. Um, Rain might be okay for for Paul, but also you know you having mentioned Paul made me remember, of course, that he had a really a really good shot at winning both of the races last year. So the first one he looked to have the pace to 
to win basically and then the red flag happened and he didn't have the the proper tire for the second part of the race i believe and then the the second race obviously was the three bike three bike finish that easily he could have won so i think this this track will be a good barometer for just how far along he is with getting to grips with honda because clearly he's he's really really good here he was really really good on the ktm last year so if if he's lacking on the honda that'll i'll probably say something that he's still a ways away which he's looked in the first half so who knows what technically people have got in their garages and what manufacturers have just managed to put things forward to for this second half of the season. So will any up-and-coming tracks maybe derail Quattararo's momentum, Simon? Just on that note, before we go any further, I will say that there is just, we touched on this in the last podcast, but obviously the only technical thing I think that really matters this weekend is whether or not Suzuki turn up with the rear ride height adjustment device. Um, no one else is going to bring anything at this point in the season that's going to make a substantial impact to the rest of their championship. But if Alex Rins is to be believed about just how much time Suzuki are losing, you know, he quoted like 0.3.4 second a lap. If that comes, then that is the single, possibly the single most important technical development of the season. Um, but we don't know if that's true or not, or if it's, you know, if it's actually there. I mean, uh, forgive me for being a bit facetious, but if it's if it's legitimately four tenths, then Suzuki will win every remaining race of the season. <laughs> so I I don't see it being four tenths. If it's four tenths at the Red Bull Ring, they'll lap the field. So <laughs> yeah, but yeah, no, it's it's and that's a track where it will it will certainly help if they do in fact bring it. Uh, and honestly, if if Suzuki does does have a really good. Austria doubleheader, then maybe there's still something to fight for in this season. But it has to be a really good Austria doubleheader, I think. And it's worth noticing that noting that it is only Mir because Rins has crashed so much that he's he's out of the championship fight. Uh, to answer your original question, Toby, um, I think that once the Red Bull ring is over and done with, um, Yamaha actually have quite a good time of it. Um, Silverstone they're gonna you know they'll be fast at silverstone they'll be super fast at silverstone uh mizano they will go well aragon they won't struggle um texas is a bit more difficult for them perhaps but again you have to assume that by then mark marquez will be even fitter and that he's the guy taking the maximum points from there not anyone else uh then we maybe we go to sapang who knows right now um it seems like a bit of a gray area but it's a Yamaha, it's a circuit where Yamaha go well. He can win at Portimao, he's already proven that, and he can win at Valencia, no problem. So this is really, these two races are the boogie circuits for them now. One interesting thing, Simon, picking up on what you said about those forthcoming races, that we, of course, we haven't been to Cota last year at all. So it's the, the biggest technical step for the teams from when they last went to this year. So that's another thing in the mix that's a bit flying blind. It is. The bikes are technically going to be, you know, so different. Yeah. And it doesn't help by the fact that Code is a bit of a weird circuit anyway. It's not a normal European circuit by any stretch of the imagination, is it? With that that weird, fast-flowing sort of turns two to turn nine, is it? Where it's like a ski slalom course. All of that makes it a rather unusual circuit. You know, it's got a huge uphill section. It's got long straights. Um it, it's not an easy track to set up a bike for, but I think that as a result, that kind of means that everybody struggles to set up a bike there. 
with the exception of Mark Marquez, who I don't know has some sort of a supernatural deal with the devil to go fast there or something. And Rins, who won. Yeah, well, that that that's kind of that proves my point about how weird a track it is, I guess, because it's on paper it's a Ducati circuit or a KTM circuit or maybe a Honda circuit, but whenever Mark Marquez wasn't there, it was a Suzuki that beat a Yamaha with Valentino Rossi on it. it it's not an on, it's not a usual track. And I think the fact that it's been two years since we went there means that it's just going to be one of those crazy weekends where anything can happen. And there's not really any point in putting too much um, weight into making predictions this far in advance, given how crazy it can be there. I mean, I think one prediction is fair to make. I, I, I expect that at Kota, there will be MotoGP riders fighting for 20 points and then the 25 will go to Mark. Because the only time he lost is... I won't say because he got bored out front, but it was, you know, he was leading by a mile. Yeah. He wasn't bored. There was something else happening there, but yeah, it's it's his race. Yeah. He's, and he will be more fit than he will have been at the Saxon ring. So I don't I don't really see any other outcome, to be honest. If he can win in the Saxon ring, he can yeah. win in, in uh, Coda with ease. Yeah. Well, he can yeah. win a Coda with ease. Yeah. Uh, but what I was what I was going to mention is regarding Fabius' 34 points, You'd think just looking at, you know, at MotoGP's point system, 34, you can lose that in two races very, very easily. You can lose that at the Red Bull ring right now with the Zarco double or something like that. But I've, I've looked at, at MotoGP's history of, of summer breaks during the summer break. I've looked at, you know, every recognizable three or four week summer gap that sort of delineates the first and the second half of the season. And like going back to like 1990 or something, every time you can find it, the guy who's leading at the, at the end of the summer break is the guy who wins the championship. And usually, usually the lead grows. Now, I think there, there are, there were two exceptions. One is in the eighties that I don't remember right now. And the other one is Valentino Rossi losing the championship lead to Jorge Lorenzo in 20, uh, 2015. And that was, that was one where Rossi will tell you it's his championship and he was robbed. So, you know, make of that what you will. That's another podcast that is. Yeah. Uh, and we're not going to do it either. If That's you... a series, Toby. That's a series. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I will never forget that. No, no, don't do it, Moody. <laughs> don't, don't do, do it, it, Toby. Don't you're only going to break my own rules. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, okay. Um, let's also mention, in no particular order, the fact that for these next three Grand Prix, we have got Cal Crutchlow returning. So he is replacing Franco Morbidelli on the Patronus Yamaha. Um, it's a difficult one. He's not going to bust his ass. He's not going to all of a sudden have a home track advantage and be on the podium at Silverstone. The bike has been not so easy to ride, if I'm politically correct about it. What's your opinion? I, I'm going to contradict you slightly or oppose you Fine. slightly and Carry say on. that I'm not expecting him to be in the podium at Silverstone, but I wouldn't be surprised if he wasn't too far away from it. Um, Cal has an impressive ability to jump on a motorbike, having not rode one for months at a time and suddenly be fast again. So I think he'll turn up and he won't suffer the way that many other riders would suffer from an absence of this length. You know, let's not forget the guy smashed his ankle into pieces at Phillip Island in 2018 did no riding, missed the last two rounds, did no riding over winter, um, was still, when I saw him in January, was still basically on a mobility scooter 
turned up to guitar, did one test and finished in the podium at a track that isn't really his track. So I think given the fact that he's in a Yamaha that I, so I'm not sure the Yamaha's is the 2019 Yamaha is as uncompetitive as we necessarily think it is. Cause I think Morbidelli's had issues this year that have hidden the real potential of that bike. Cause the guy won three races on it last year and the rest of the bikes haven't changed that much. You know, I don't... Yeah, but he's got he's got seven points in six races. But that's my point. I think the problem is the rider and not the bike. You know, he is also sitting out the next three months because of a huge knee construction surgery that we didn't know anything about until it got so severe that he had to do that mid-season. I think that we haven't seen the real potential of Franco Morbidelli this year and, and the, because he was so strong last year and because he's on the same bike this year the default is to blame the bike when I think the reality is that the rider is in a much worse condition than, than we thought he is. Um, I, I don't think whenever we speak to Crutchlow this weekend that he's going to be too upset about being on the 2019 bike versus the 2020 slash 21, you know, whatever it is with the rules freeze. Um, and I, I think that working with Ramon Fricata, he'll very quickly get into a good rhythm with that bike. He won't have to do all the development work that he'd have to do if he was riding, doing a wild card on a 2022 spec bike. Um, and yeah, I wouldn't be terribly surprised. He, he'll treat Red Bull Ring as two test sessions as well. That's the other thing. It's a good time to come into your home race with two, two races at a track where you're not expected to do anything and then go into Silverstone. I, yeah, I genuinely don't think he'll be too far away. There's, you know, the speed, the speed trap figures don't lie and they've been pretty pretty miserable for Morbidelli all season. So that's that's not something that's you you overcome at the Red Bull ring, I don't think. But at Tillerstone, yeah, you might. Uh but yeah, I I sort of semi agree with Simon's thesis on, on Morbidelli. Probably more agree than disagree, because it's just he's had a really strange season in, in, in many, many ways. Because every time the weekend begins, it does seem like he has a serious turn of pace on Friday and then something goes wrong either at the start and on the opening lap, sometimes in, in qualifying a bit, something like that. Uh, the bike is, you know, it's probably being left behind by the by the tech race. And yeah, probably at this point, you'd rather have the 21 Yamaha overall, but I I don't think it's it's rubbish at this point. And ultimately, you know, he's he's still been reasonably competitive for the most part, say for a couple of weekends, I have been really not good. I think that, you know, the, the thing to sort of to frame it with is, sure, the 2019 Yamaha isn't as good as the 2021 Yamaha, but you would still think that the 2019 Yamaha is better than the current Aprilia. But he's getting beaten by the current Aprilia. You know, he's it's not like he's just the last of the Yamahas. And it's not like he's losing everything on, on speed trap times. Someone else who is going to be new into the grid is going to be... Uh, Danny Pedrosa. So he's a wild card rather than a replacement rider a la Crutchlow. So the bike that he's got is a test thing, is something for 22 and beyond, or something for the remainder of the season. Let's let's be blank, uh, blunt about it. I thought he would never ride a Grand Prix again, and he always dug his heels in, but maybe the success that they've had last year and this year has been a bit too much for him, and the pressure, if I can call it that, that the management would have put on him for their home race has obviously uh, 
broken him, shall we say, in a nice way. He'll 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 raise a smile about it. That's going to be very interesting for me because you know a lot of people have put the the the, the weight of the the success of KTM on Danny Pedrosa of late, and he's back with a free reign. They're not restricted with engines or spec or whatever. It's go. If I were any other manufacturer, I'd be quite worried about Danny Pedrosa coming back. Not because I think he's going to do anything remarkably impressive this weekend, but because if the new bike is so good that it brought him out of retirement to ride it on a race weekend, it means it's probably really pretty good. And let's be honest, based on what we've seen from KTM, the current bike is already pretty good. Uh, KTM, Pat Byer, the, the head of motorsport, gave me an interview a few weeks ago where he said that the 2022 bike is the first bike that is the Danny Pedrosa bike because he joined at the end of 18. The 19 bike was already built. The 20 bike only had limited time to take his development, move in his direction. And then we've essentially had a freeze since then. So uh, what what we're seeing now is him riding the bike that he once built. And obviously he wants to ride it bad enough that he's willing to race it. And yeah, I think that probably means it's pretty good. Yeah, I think that's... Uh... That's hit the nail on the head, actually. He, as I always say, they know something we don't. So uh, <laughs> they've got that one uh, up their sleeve. Um, what other news might we hear about Valentino Rossi? Just bring us up to date with what's going to go on or not go on for 2022, because apparently it's imminent if you read the Italian stuff. But what's your take? My, so this, this is muddier than a very muddy pond at the minute. Um, the consensus going into the summer break was that Valentino was going to retire. That was broadly across the paddock from people who know him very well, and whatever. With the only caveat potentially being that the, the new Saudi sponsors of his own team want him to ride the bike for them next year. Uh, over the course of the summer break, there's been a few little whispers from people like Guccio Salucci, his best mate, sort of, and, and the boss of the team, I should say, implying you know that maybe he could be persuaded to stay and ride for the Saudis at Ducati. But then there's also been lots of rumors that the entire deal with the Saudis is um, a bit nebulous, shall we say. Um, even from the very beginning, whenever it was very first announced, there was uh, sort of unusual phone calls being made by PR agencies questioning the validity of Aramco's involvement in the deal. There's been more of that recently from some of the Italian media who've done a, a sort of a deep dig into some of the Italians involved in the Saudi side of the deal. And it it looks really thin um and and yeah i i just i don't know how much weight to put into rumors that valentino rossi is going to ride for his own team because the saudis want him to whenever it seems in theory like the saudis aren't necessarily overly committed to the whole project or at least the right saudis aren't overly committed to the whole project maybe the deal was on then but I think you've said it. Maybe the deal's off now because he's changed his mind. It's maybe deals do get done and then undone. Maybe it's a maybe it's an. Well, I, I, this is just complete speculation based out of nothing. But sort of, if if you wanted to join MotoGP, uh, you'd want Valentino riding for you for PR reasons. 
And a good way to ensure that would be to play hardball over the deal. I don't know. I mean, that's that's how I would play it. I, I hope that's not the case. I certainly hope that if Valentino Rossi does end up sticking, out, uh, sticking around for another year, it's not based mostly on marketing or commercial reasons because that's not good for anyone. But who knows? Like, it's it's not, not a ton of clarity about that situation at the moment. And when you see his right-hand man go on Sky and entertain the idea, I mean, he according to Uccio, it's still, you know, it's still very much up to Rossi. And if that's the case, then obviously... If it's really, truly up to Rossi, I'm not sure how he, why he would sign up for another year of this. But, you know, we'll find out. We'll see. People are, people are strange. There's... There's no way he can think that switching to Ducati is going to move him from P19 to P5, is there? I, there is a point where the issue isn't the bike, especially when the bike is leading the championship. Quite. Quite. I think we're all in agreement of what we think should happen, but that's us, not him. Um, and we're not in the garage and we're not with the visor down. So, yeah, it's uh, not an easy one. And the day's got to come. The day's got to come sooner or later, whether or not it's in the next month or if it's in 12 months' time after he does this. Sky, Ducati, sorry, Ducati, Aramco, whatever it's going to be, if at all. Uh, I think there's um, there's a bit still to go on this, so we shall uh, we shall see what's going to happen. Will Vinales be quicker, slower, now that he's got rid of this Yamaha pressure? Yeah, so here, here's the thing. Uh, I think recently, you know, as the MotoGP contracts sort of move earlier and earlier into the season, we've been seeing quite a few occasions where we were wondering whether the right deal was signed or whether the results of the season were sort of disproving the deal that was signed. Like, for instance, obviously... The questions about whether Paul was right to leave KTM. The questions whether Jorge was, you know, right to be shoved out of Ducati. The question of whether Jorge was initially right to leave Yamaha. Didn't he win on his Yamaha farewell, I believe? I would not be surprised if a rejuvenated Vinales, who sort of sees a renewed path and a new purpose in MotoGP, I would not be surprised if Freed from if the knowledge that he'll have somewhere else to go to and that he'll definitely break the cycle. I would not be surprised if that knowledge freed him up a bit. I would not be surprised if if he actually had a pretty good enter stint at Yamaha. Uh, would that make his move wrong? No, no, I don't think so. But might lead to a few interesting questions in, in, the, in the final press conferences. And obviously, there's also the, the flip side possibility, which is that everybody will give up and he'll, he'll spend the rest of the season in 10th which I guess I don't really see happening. Maverick's a bit too good for that, I think. I uh, I also think that the other benefit to him is that uh, he, he now is basically forfeited all test and development duties. He doesn't have to worry about jumping on any component that might possibly make it onto the 2022 bike because there's no way on earth that Yamaha is going to let any of those parts near him. He is... You know, he's an outcast technically, and that's a good thing because he knows what he's got for the rest of the year and he just gets on with riding it 
Um, once we get through the Red Bull Ring, all the difficult Yamaha circuits like we listed at the start are out of the way. And um, you know, he is obviously capable of winning races. He's already done it this year, commanding style. Um, and I, I think he wouldn't be surprised if we see him rack up two or three other you know wins by the end of the year. And I don't really think anyone will be too upset by that either because he's not really in championship contention. So it's another name on the list that can take points away from championship rivals if Fabio Quattararo can't. So, you know, I, I don't think it's an issue and I don't think anybody, anybody will be too upset if he, uh, you know, does the business on occasion. He won't find consistency. I, I don't see him finding any form of consistency because it's Maverick and he's never found any form of consistency in the Yamaha but um, he can win races for sure I'd say there was something end of uh, 2019 I'd say there was I'm not sure any of us believed that it would last for like a a sustained period like a year or something like that but there was a a, I think the significant patch of form where Mark Maverick and Fabio were three of the clear best guys in MotoGP at that point week in week out I honestly, I would not be surprised if if Maverick showed something like that again this year. But you just never know, do you? You don't. That's the thing. It's Maverick. Yeah. We touched on a question mark about Sepang. It's after Texas, but before Portugal. That's an awful long way to shift. What three jumbos worth of freight alone? Let alone all of the staff that need to service three Grand Prix and a Grand Prix itself. I've got a question mark on my calendar here against Sepang. Um, Thailand's been cancelled, Simon. I can't see Sepang happening, can I, with something else that I saw in the news last week? Uh, Sepang, Malaysia as a whole, is not in a great shape at the minute with COVID. Um, And yeah, it's they've they've kind of hinted that I think this is the real deal breaker, to be honest. They've kind of hinted that they can't have a race without spectators. And if the situation doesn't allow spectators, then that's it. Otherwise, they'll find a way because they will do everything in their power to see Valentino Rossi race for their team in Malaysia. Let's not forget that the the, the link between Sepang, the team, Sepang, the circuit... Patronus and the Malaysian government is all very, it's all very closely linked together, um, in some cases by blood. So um, they will push and push and push like crazy to make it happen. And that's why it's still on the calendar whenever Motegi and Phillip Island and Thailand are off the calendar already. Um, But if I was to put money on a on a more realistic option night, it would be two races in Texas. Which, by the way, also F1 is apparently considering so... Exactly, which is going to make for a busy weekend for the Coda or a busy month for the Coda staff because I think it means four races in four weeks for them. But um, yeah, to me, that is the logical solution to the whole problem. America want a race. America is in a reasonably good position in terms of COVID. I'd be very surprised if that didn't. Doubleheader races, wherever they are, Europe, where everything gets to there by truck, or flyways, where everything gets to there by jumbo and flight case, uh, they're cheap. The cheapest races you can have are European back-to-backs. The most expensive races you can have to run, from Dorna's point of view, are single 
races on a continent miles away from the previous and the next race. And that's exactly what Sepang is. And correct me if I'm wrong, Toby, you're you're in a better position than me to confirm this, but I don't think we've had a standalone flyaway race since the end of tobacco sponsorship. Oh, we used to do Rio on its own again, as you say. Uh, yeah. It was probably propped up by Philip Morris or whoever. We used to do Laguna on its own, but actually the freight stayed in America because then we had uh, Indianapolis a month later in the same country, so the yeah. freight just stayed at Indy. Yeah. Um, I can't remember off the top of my head, but yeah, you, you're more right than wrong. Absolutely, you're 99% right. The the one-offs. I mean, we we did go in 99. We went all the way to Australia and then all the way from Australia to South Africa to back to home. That was a bit of a schlep, I'll tell you that. Um, but that was that was over two decades ago, so I'm not comparing apples with apples, but but you're right. But it's it, it, and particularly yes. at the moment where the circuits are the majority of the circuits are unable to recoup the cost of paying for the Grand Prix to come to this circuit. That means that Dorna and Bridgepoint, who own Dorna, are having to prop up this championship to keep the TV deal happy because the TV deals make the wheels of the whole thing work. No TV, no sponsors, no sponsors. We're all going to Darley Moore and having a thrash on a Saturday afternoon. So, yeah, <laughs> Simon's laughing, I can see here. So uh, I'm just thinking about MotoGP at Daily Mirror. It sounds fantastic. There's nothing idea. wrong with it. I've had a good day there. It was great. And a, and a trip on a sidecar. It was good fun. So, uh, so yeah, it's a shame that we won't go to Sepang because, as you say, Simon, the sellout crowd are dying to see their darling in the shape of Valentino Rossi in Patronus at the Circuit International of, of Sepang. Uh, He'd go up the Patronus Towers on the Thursday afternoon. It's a fairy tale, and unfortunately, it may well be denied. It's a suggestion from me to anger the purists, which I'm sorry, but you know, with one double header and maybe two double headers, just remembering last year, there's there's nothing more boring in MotoGP than a Friday of a second double header weekend. Like nothing happens. There's no point to it. Nobody wants to watch it. Nobody wants to say anything. Uh, if I were MotoGP with this becoming slightly more of a regular thing, I'd start to think about how to experiment with formats or something like that. I'm, I'm guessing that's not on the cards, but man, wouldn't it be nice? Because another Friday of a second weekend at the same track. Uh, dear Lord. I, I couldn't agree more. I will just correct Val slightly. There is one thing worse than the Friday of a doubleheader weekend, and it's the Thursday <laughs> media debrief. Thursday, so oh, doubleheader. <laughs> Don't get me started on changing the formats. I've been banging on about it since 2009. <laughs> um, you know, we had a we had a Monday night MotoGP race in Qatar. The TV figures were through the roof. Just do it again. You know, <laughs> nobody goes out on a Monday night. Everyone's at home. They've all still got a two-day hangover because they've had a bender on Saturday. You know, they're all at home. Not in Qatar, they haven't. Not Qatar, but the TV people have you. There's only two and a half thousand people <laughs> that go and watch Qatar. Yeah, you know what I mean, Simon. Touche, touche. So, yeah, and Formula yeah. One have played around with the format. They had their little 17 lap of sprint race at Silverstone the other week. Um, is it the final answer? No, but at least they've put their front foot forwards, and I, I applaud that. But that that was not for a doubleheader, which is the, the silly part. When F, F1 
will have a double has had a double header at Austria. Didn't bother with the with the trialing there, which I think is is absolutely delirious. And Silverstone last um, year. Yeah. So uh, if MotoGP, like the sprint, might not be the worst idea for a second weekend of something like that. Maybe reverse the grid or something. I I know it's. It's a, it requires a lot of thought. It's not just something where you go, just do this or do that. But God, I mean, just the same weekend twice, the same format. It's, it's really difficult to tell stories about that. It is. When we were doing the Eurosport International stuff, the Germans were in the next commentary box and they were doing Friday afternoon practice qualifying, whatever it was, probably qualifying in those days for, for 125. On a Friday afternoon from Mategi, 2,400 viewers. Germany's got what 80 million people and and something mad like 80 something percent are all were at the time all connected to satellite or cable nobody watches it nobody watches it I think you might have answered it yourself Valentin is is if we've got a double header on the second weekend just don't have Friday what is that again just don't have well, it yeah I agree I agree just save the track time give us all an just, extra just day save off. everybody's time and save every a few people's asses going to yeah. hospital just just do qualifying race done because the tv figures on sunday afternoon are king not exactly. friday do like a friday kart race to determine q1 and q2 or something Some, yeah. higher car race <laughs> the the only good thing this year about the double headers is that austria proved last year that um it's an eventful place yeah you know we had two crazy double headers there so i'm not too upset about having two races in Austria. Um, I think there'd be a bit of the same in Texas. Yeah. I think we'd have another two kind of wacky weekends. Um, for me, the 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 hellish, unimaginable, suffering, worst case scenario imaginable would be two races at Valencia. <laughs> like, just shit me now. I hate that place. No, 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 no. Back-to-back races at Le Mans. No, Le Mans, is, Le Mans is interesting. It's a nice circuit. The weather can change. It's got a ballsy turn one. Valencia is the worst circuit in the world to decide a championship. Yeah, I have strong feelings yeah. of this. Well, plus, everyone's just worn out. Everyone's worn out by the time we get to Valencia. But it's a single-line circuit. You don't want to decide the championship in a single-line circuit. I love Le Mans for the big 24-hour race. But it, on the little track, it's just not quite the same, is it? Yeah, you know what? I, I went to Le Mans earlier this year for the 24-hour race. On the little the track. The 24-hour bike race. On the little track. And it was 27 degrees all weekend <laughs> and it was glorious. <laughs> I walked the track at 4 a.m. and it was 18 degrees. It was 11 degrees for MotoGP warm-up. I think the big fear for if there is a Kota doubleheader is imagine the first Sunday, oops, Marcus has won by six seconds. We all know that the next weekend we're we're about to do the same thing again, even though we kind of sort of know the outcome already. That's the I, I kind of think that is up to Dorna's TV direction. Because there is actually always entertaining battles to the podium yeah, there. You don't want to know the winner. You do. Yeah. But, yeah. At the end of the day, I think I think we're straying off here. You know, Carmelo and the crew are making races happen, and none more so than last year. You know, yeah. that, that, that celebratory yeah. moment they had on the grid for the last race last year in Portugal, congratulating Carmelo. I was like, fair play. Putting on events in the UK is, is hard enough, let alone 
overseas, governments, money, people not paying, going back to Bridgepoint, asking for money, whatever, wherever they've had to get the money from last year. Uh, Bridgepoint, yeah, they're going to sell some shares off at the moment. I don't know what you've seen. They're going to try and raise some funds elsewhere. But, um, you know, it's not easy. At the end of the day, I might not watch a Friday, but I will watch a Saturday. And without fail, I'll watch a Sunday without fail. And that's key. And I'd prefer to watch something at a back, the second race of a, of a back-to-backer than nothing at all. Yeah, no, I, I second race. I agree. My my grievance is mostly Friday, and I need to I need to do an important disclaimer before we move on because I know <laughs> I know for a fact that there will be people listening to this feeling like, why are you complaining? You get to cover MotoGP. You should enjoy having more MotoGP to cover. And you know what? On partly fair enough, but also partly just it's been a long year. <laughs> yeah, that's that's it's been, so, it's been a long calendar year. Been, not a, yeah. Not, yeah. It's been a long, more than a year for everyone. So uh, forgive and me. And there's only so many questions you can ask yeah. a writer. There's only so many yeah. stories that come out of those Thursdays and Fridays. I always found, and Simon, you'll get this, when we did the, the trio of Asian races, Mategi, Australia, and then Sepang, there were a couple of those Sepang races where I did it professionally in the commentary box, but driving to the circuit on the Thursday was like it's it it I've never ever ever in a quarter of a century since I started in '96 gone oh this is just a job. But I had just the odd minute on the Thursday of those of the third race and the three weekends going. We're just going through the motions, Julian. We're we're just driving to the circuit, writing stuff down, writing into a computer, making notes, and driving back to the hotel. With, with well, I shouldn't complain. Um, I shouldn't complain. In- so, so, so <laughs> that's also that's my disclaimer. Without, um, you know, in- increasing the hatred for me in a certain Spanish province, I've never got that in Sepang, but I get it in Valencia. Oh, I agree. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you get to Valencia <laughs> it is in the a dark. Valencia problem. You get to yep. Valencia in the dark, and you leave in the dark, and that, that was a bit soul destroying. Yeah, but but the Germans have an expression: "Do not complain at a high level." <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so yeah okay yeah. anything else that jumps out as we go into part two of 2021 val anything yeah i think simon's about to become valencia's most hated figure <laughs> even above peter lim the owner of the of the football club so yeah that's yeah, a I'm football saying, joke for I'm, all the I'm, crossover football fans which I'm, there are I'm, none of so i'm just saying what everyone else in MotoGP feels trust me it's it's yeah i'm I'm not going to continue digging myself into this hole i think it's pretty obvious i'm not a fan of it but there you go you turn the heater up in your van you'll be fine you'll be absolutely fine nice city though nice city my objections are mainly with the track and when the race is scheduled so you know it is it is it is a bit it is a bit dreary but there we go there we go anyway the good thing is two austrias a silverstone an aragon a Misano. Maybe two at Texas. That is something that we all have learned this afternoon. If it's going to get confirmed, that'd be great. Maybe Sepang, question mark. It's quite a big, bold question mark at the moment. Portugal, love that. And then Valencia. Moving swiftly on about Valencia, that might be the last race of the year. So hopefully we'll have nine Grand Prix. We're exactly half the way through. Can Fabio Quattararo win the 2021 MotoGP World Championship? 
We've got a Frenchman first, a Frenchman second in the, sa in the shape of Juan Zarco. Yamaha ahead of Ducati. Francesco Bagna, uh, ahead of Ducati, and then Francesco Bagna, another Ducati then in that third position. Keep in touch with the-race.com for all news, podcasts, videos about Formula One and MotoGP. It's brimful of information about a lot of motorsports, so keep in touch. From Valentin, from Simon, and myself, Toby Moody, we'll speak to you soon after the first Austrian MotoGP race. Speak to you later. Thanks for tuning in. Bye for now.